I think it is fair to say that for the past 10 years of my dad's life, he emphasized the order and honor and design of human relationships more than any other theme in his ministry. He probably repeated himself and taught on that more than anything else I can think of. Of course, it wasn't just for those past 10 years, but it seemed to become only more and more intensified toward the end. And I think that it's one of those topics that has, a, has connotations or at least a, a sense of abstractness, if that's a word, <laughs> that um, can leave us going, huh? <laughs> and the Lord's brought it to life in many different ways through the story of the return of the ark and Uzzah, through the story of David and Saul and his unwillingness to touch the Lord's anointed and through the story of Jesus' admonition to the people concerning the Pharisees who sat in the seat of Moses and through the writings of Jude who said that Michael the archangel did not bring railing accusations against him but said the Lord rebuke you. All of these things seem to indicate the same thing that God has placed us in an intricate order for our good and that we don't submit to that order because some party or person is worthy of our submission, but we submit to his design because it occasions his grace through our humility toward that design. And I feel like across the spectrum, even this year, God has been bringing his government and peace to bear all over the world in small ways and in great ways. And I feel that locally in this context, I feel that there has been a willingness on the part of many key leading brothers to transcend their fears or past mistakes or suspicions or preconceptions and grope together toward the realization of God's harmonious design. And I, I don't look at this as some small little improvement. Well, it was inevitable, but at last it came. I look at it as the catalyst for our success worldwide and generationally. There is no power except in unity. There is no anointing except in unity. There is no kingdom of God without unity. Where brothers dwell together, there Yahweh commands that a blessing awaits. It's like a combination lock. When the tumblers align, the treasure box opens. And our configuration and our order amongst ourselves is that combination lock. And when we come into alignment, a whole box of anointing and grace, promise, and fulfillment opens to us.
We touched on this just before the fair last year, and it's been a little bit of a theme that we've touched on from time to time. I remember as a child, my dad ministering from Ephesians 1.10. And it was a formative scripture throughout the history of our fellowship. In the dispensation of the fullness of times, God will gather together all things that are in Christ under one head. Things in heaven and things on earth under one head. And and, uh, one translation renders that he will gather together in Christ all things that are in him. Heavenly things and earthly things. And with that phrase, we can infer that the kingdom does have both highly spiritual dimensions and also practical dimensions. This was articulated in the early chapters of Acts when the church was first getting started. We remember that the apostles were preaching the word and 3,000 were being added at once and they were growing. Word of them was spreading. Miracles were being done. Even judgment was coming. God was protecting what he was doing. And then we're told that a dispute arose because people didn't feel like there was fairness in the distribution of goods. And so the apostles said it is not right that we should be giving ourselves to these tasks. And the assumption is that they felt that they were overextended. The assumption, the conclusion is not that the apostles were unable to be fair. It's that they were unable to give adequate time to the ministry they were called to and also to the ministry they were not called to. But from the authority God had given them, they asked the people, who are the most respected and responsible? I'm paraphrasing. The people identified seven men, if I remember correctly, and the apostles appointed them. It doesn't say that the people appointed them. It says that the people nominated them. They recognized them. They knew those who could labor among them. And the apostles appointed them. And the qualifications were that they would be men full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. And this was the birth of one side of the leadership ministry that covers the church. And this was the birth of the diaconate. This was the institution of those who could lead in these more specific areas of life and, 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 and kingdom living within the context of this new thing called the church. And we know that these terms, elder and deacon, even minister, pastor, these terms have lost their meaning over the years and new and strange meaning has been imputed into these phrases. But in, in this congregation, we see that there is one body one God overall, but that he has appointed gifts in the body and that those gifts have a lot of overlap. But the two basic categories would be the five-fold ministry and the diaconate ministry when it comes to leadership gifts. And there are numerous gifts that are aids and supports and helps to the body. And we know that whatever these brothers were, they, they, they were not simply defined as those who 
weighted tables. <laughs> they were not simply defined as those who coordinated banquets. Uh, amen. They were men full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. Two of the notable deacons are mentioned and their works stand right with the apostles. Philip is opening the church to the Samaritan nation. He doesn't go beyond his calling, but he's able to perform miracles. How many of the apostles were caught up and teletransported from one location to another? Huh? So it's just carnal to think in some kind of this is greater, that's greater. We all are striving to be the least. We're all striving to be the servants of God's people. But this man was mightily used of God and, and performed miracles. A paralytic was healed. He needed the other members of the body, didn't he? Even the other members of the, of the five-fold ministry. And, and so he was willing to call for Peter and John, if I remember correctly. And they were able to step in and help him bring the full counsel of God to the Samaritan church. Again, I reference Stephen. He's one of the most famous people in all of the Bible because he's the first martyr. I referenced him last week and how his prayer wasn't um, a display of magnanimity. He really was praying for the people he was trying to minister to. And that prayer was answered for a young man shortly after as he went down the road to Damascus and saw a great light. And Stephen, Stephen knew his Bible pretty well. <laughs> he was able to bring a word, a, a witness to the Sanhedrin for which they would be eternally accountable. He was able to present the whole of their history in a capsule of a message that brought great conviction. And the Bible tells us that they gnashed their teeth and picked up stones to stone him. And this is obviously not the kind of response that he was probably hoping for, but he wasn't there to get a response. He was there to glorify God. He wasn't there to judge his actions by results. He was there to give himself wholly to the Lord. And so I want to, I want to take a little bit of a journey with you um, and I want to talk about the need for the right configuration and for things to come forth according to the right order in the body of Christ. And I, I actually gave all of that as a preface. I didn't intend to do it, but I was afraid that if I didn't tell you that's where I was going, I might lose you along the way. The scripture or the phrase that I want to start with this morning, the Lord just hit me really hard in the chest with it this morning. And it was, I am the God of your fathers. Stephen recounts this. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in the flame of the burning thorn bush. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight, and he approached to look more closely there came the voice of the Lord from the bush. I am the God of your fathers. The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Moses shook with fear and would not venture to look. 
But Yahweh said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt, and have heard their groans, and have come down to rescue them. Come now, and I will send you to Egypt. Thank you, Jesus. The word is, I am the God of your fathers. I ministered last week about a level of revelation that the Lord gave of himself to Moses that was unprecedented. And that would come sometime after this. But in his first numinous encounter with God through the Spirit, the Lord introduces himself to Moses by saying, I am the God of your fathers. Do you feel like there's any significance in that statement? Do you feel like the Lord would speak to us and begin a ministry or advance a gifting by starting at this point and telling us, I am the God of your fathers? Faith in Christianity is so individualized but the Lord didn't introduce himself and say I am your savior that was a true statement but he didn't say that he didn't introduce himself and say I am your healer you stutterer he said I am the God of your fathers there's something in that in Romans 8 Paul makes a statement and he says All of creation is groaning in the pains of birth until now, waiting for the sons of God to be revealed. He doesn't say all of creation is groaning and it's a kind of pain that's almost as bad as birth. He says all of creation is groaning in birth pangs. Until now. He encapsulates or summarizes all the duress that sin has inflicted on nature with the phrase birth pangs. That's not a metaphor. He's referring to birth pangs. He's saying that When God created the world, there was no death. There was no aging. There was no outwardly we are fading away. Every species of life was eternal here on this earth. And sin introduced death. Sin brought about death. And what is the only antidote to death? What is the only antidote to death? How many in this room are going to die? Please raise your hand unless you think you're Enoch. (laughs) You're going to die. The Bible says there's no discharge from this war. 
naked and alone. You came into the world and naked and alone, you're going to leave. You can take nothing with you. So I ask you, is this marvel in our times, this blessing we live in, is it going to die with us? Why will it not die? What will keep this movement moving into the future? Our children and their children and their children and their children until the Lord returns. Our task is a generational task. It is not an individual dilemma to solve. Thank you, Jesus. Let me read you a couple of scriptures and we're going to come back. These are going to be much more meaningful at the end, but just bear with me here for just a second. I will give one tribe to his son so that my servant David will always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I chose to put my name. Second Kings, God promised to give David a lamp through his sons forever. Nevertheless, first Kings, nevertheless, for the sake of David, Yahweh, his God, gave him a lamp in Jerusalem by raising up sons to succeed him and to make Jerusalem strong. Second Chronicles 21.7, yet Yahweh was unwilling to destroy the house of David because of the covenant he had made with David. And since he had promised to maintain a lamp for David through his descendants forever. Psalms 132, for Yahweh has chosen Zion. This is a messianic prophecy of the church. Yahweh has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling, saying, This is my resting place forever and ever. Here I will sit enthroned, for I have desired it. I will bless her with abundant provisions. Her poor I will satisfy with food. I will clothe her priests with salvation and her faithful people will ever sing for joy. Here, in the church, in Zion, here I will make a horn for David and set up a lamp for my anointed one. I will clothe his enemies with shame, but his head will be adorned with a radiant crown. In all of these scriptures, the Lord promised David that he would have a light that did not go out. In the book of Revelations, we are told that if the church does not repent, their lamp is going to go out. Isn't that right? But David's lamp was not merely a book of all he had done. David's lamp was the promise that through his sons, God would keep alive the generational promise that he had sworn to David. So, a continuous generation of faithfulness keeps the lamp burning. All of this alludes to the menorah that sat in the temple. That day and night was never supposed to go out and could only be burned with the purest olive oil. Young olives that give off no smoke, no flesh, no confusion, just the pure light of anointing oil. And that menorah 
was made of almond blossoms, which you might think is ironic because the menorah is burning olive oil, but is carved in the shape of almond blossoms. Why? Because the feast of first fruits coincided with Pentecost, and the almond was the first tree in Israel to fruit. And so it was the sign of Pentecost. And on that day of first fruits, on that day when the law was given, the first fruits of the Holy Spirit were poured out on his people. And that menorah was merely symbolic of that lamp that should stay in the church and never go out. The first fruits of the Holy Spirit, the pure olive oil of the Gethsemane pressed anointing burning in God's house. Sons of fresh anointing, we won't go there. So, the lamp is the same as the descendants. And I was saying that birth is the antidote to death. How many species known to scientists have gone extinct in the last 500 years? 900. How many species have gone extinct in the last 100 years? 180. Dinosaurs don't walk the face of the earth and hairy mammoths don't either and whatever those kind of tigers do, don't either. I don't, I'm not sure if I can stretch my faith to believe they're fossils, but there's some kind of big cat that used to be here. What is this trend of extinction? It's the curse catching up with birth, right? It's death outpacing life. And so when Paul says all of creation is groaning in birth pangs, he's being literal. All of creation is having to reproduce a lot faster than it would have because it's trying to wait until this life should be revealed that is deathless and everlasting. And in this same chapter, he said, we who have the first fruits, yes, even we ourselves groan within ourselves waiting for the redemption of our bodies. So we are sons of God by the Spirit, but we are sons of Adam in the flesh, are we not? And we have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit inside, but outwardly we are fading away even while inwardly renewed day by day. Knowing that our outward affliction is not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed. And creation is going to rejoice and the birth pangs are going to stop when in a twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet we will be changed. And corruption will put on incorruption and then the saying will be fulfilled, death, where is your sting? Grave, where is your victory? It will be swallowed up. He'll wipe away every tear. That eternal, secure life is what it's all about. It's where we're heading. Amen? But birth is how we keep the lamp burning. And in the time of David, that was a genealogical situation, but in our time, not so much, is it? Even still, there's a purpose behind continuity, and the Bible stresses it when he introduces himself to Moses 
the Lord calls himself, I am the God of your... You're not the upstart. You're not the new kid on the block. You're not the first revelation of God to man. I'm your dad's God. And I'm going to pick up what I left off with them and carry it forward through you if you understand that I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The first book in the New Covenant, how does it begin? A great long genealogy to say that God made a promise back in the Garden of Eden and it faltered with Cain and it stumbled with Abel but it rose up through Seth. It found legs in Noah. It prevailed through Enoch. It left Ur through Abraham. It left Egypt through Moses. All the way down generation after generation. What he was saying is here is the Messiah. He is the God of your fathers. This deranged orphan Christianity that makes each generation think it is the first advent of breath on the planet is the very opposite of the lamp that must stay lit in the house of God. The believer's regeneration is called a birth. And the reality of Christ in the church, reigning in the church, Paul called it a birth. Churches come through birth. Ministries come through birth. Individuals come through birth. Birth is important. Amen. Paul told the Corinthians, I am laboring again in birth pains until Christ should be formed in you. We want to see Jesus in the church, don't we? Well, that's going to be a birth. If, if God is bringing forth a diaconate ministry, that's going to be a birth. Both as a corporate entity or as an individual. If he's bringing you forth as a deacon, that's a birth. If he's bringing forth a whole diaconate, that's a birth. If he's bringing forth a church in Wisconsin, that's a birth. And if somebody got the Holy Ghost last night, that's a birth. And what are all these important steps? They represent life outpacing death. Jesus said, walk while you have the light, lest the darkness catch up to you and overtake you. Birth is important. And we stay focused on it, right? But I'm going to throw a monkey wrench at you. My brother lost an unborn baby in the last trimester. A lot of pain. Some of you know what that is like. You've suffered your own pain recently. And you ask yourself at times like this, why do we do this? And you answer, because for all of its losses, life is worth the risk. And I do it a thousand times again. I look at my children, their faces, their love, their joy. We lost our first. But when I see life, I reproach myself for ever doubting it was worth the effort.
And we can be the same way with ministries and churches. We can, we can hurt for the false starts. We can cry for those that we lost. But we're not going to be cynical. We're not going to say, I remember I tried and I was burned. We're going to say, we, we tried to bring the ark back and we didn't get it right and somebody died. And, but we prayed and we gave ourselves no rest and we gave the Lord no rest and we brought that ark back. I'm not stopping, I'm not flagging, I'm not quitting. I am going to do it if it's the last thing I ever do. I'm going to bring this all the way home. If I forget the old Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill and let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if Jerusalem, the church, is not my chief joy. Even sexuality, recognized as one of the most powerful forces in human culture and civilization, taken out of its place, it's destructive. But in truth, it's life trying to keep up with death. But let me, let me throw this monkey wrench at you. So what happens, you parents don't freak out on me, just bear with me. What happens when uh, a young teenager, barely a teenager, looks into the face of a mommy who's lost a baby and is broken or looks into the the eyes of a father who's lost their their child and and says having babies isn't that hard you know over in Africa 13 year olds are having babies I visited an orphanage where some of the children were born to 13-year-olds. It's happening in this country. What's the big deal? You want a baby? Babies aren't hard to have. You see, we're all focused. We want a baby. We want a baby. Oh, God. Baby's so important. If somebody says something like that, it's like... Oh, no, 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 you don't understand. That, that's, not, that's not God's will. That's not it at all. Please, please hold on. Well, see, see I'm, I'm trying to give a metaphor for what happens in the church. We want a ministry, we need a new church, we need a new community. We need someone to pray through. And the immature are like, that's not so hard. Here, I'll just show you. And then you're left with this baby and a 14-year-old and, and you're given this false dilemma. Hmm? It's like, do you love the baby or not? Oh, I love the baby. Oh, I, I want to protect the baby. I want to make sure the baby gets into a family environment. But I guess you didn't understand that there was more assumed than just the birth of the baby. We were assuming a family. 
And then flooding your mind is all the statistics of out-of-wedlock births. And you're saying children without fathers are nine times more likely to murder. Children without fathers are ten times more likely to abuse drugs and take a violent weapon to a fight. And children without fathers make up 89% of youth in mental institutions. Children without fathers make up nine out of ten who are in penitentiary for life sentences. And Oh, yes, yes, we, we were all focused on the baby, but we were assuming the father. You see, <clears throat> the false dilemma is like, either acknowledge that we have a beautiful miracle of a baby here and that it happened just how it should have, or hate the baby. I... I appeal for permission to a third option. I love the baby. I want the baby to live. I rejoice in it. But this is not how this was supposed to happen. And don't get me wrong, there hasn't been any of this happening. I'm not talking about the natural. I'm talking about the spiritual. Did you forget that? What are we talking about? Order, design in the church, aren't we? It's possible to take shortcuts to results that are tragic And yet at the same time, we can cherish the life that is in our hands and we can weep over it and laugh with it and say its hair is perfect and its fingers are perfect and its nose and its smiles and let's take care of this. But this is not the kind of solution that keeps the lamp burning. We don't need bastard solutions. Which is what Hebrews says Christians make themselves when they reject the discipline, the discipleship of the Lord. Hallelujah. The world is full of one-off successes. Brilliant gifts, shooting star ministries, trend-setting churches, pockets of love and miracles. But in all of it, there's no generational continuity. The lamp flames bright and fizzles out. We don't perceive the family of God. The miracle we pursue is the restoration of the spiritual family. We pursue the recovery of divine patterns that secure generational continuity. That is what we're after. Now, God gave my, our father, both spiritually and naturally, he gave Brother Blair a call to the Jewish people in 1973 in Menden, Louisiana, when Brother Barnes prophesied over my dad. And that call took on greater definition and specificity as he called them to New York City where there were millions of Jewish people, if I remember correctly. And they interfaced with Hasidim and Jews came to God. The Hirsches are with us. The Steins are with us. Sister, Sister Shoshana and, and so many, Brother Brother John Haldenstein, and I mean, 
all of the different strains of Jewishness in this community comes from that promise. But my dad says that at that time, there was a lot of rumbling about a call to Israel. And he said that he got a lot of pressure from people who said to him, what are you waiting for? Just go start a work in Israel. But he felt that it was premature. He felt that the body needed to come to a greater level of recovery and restoration for the witness to even be legitimate to Israel. The witness was not going to be once upon a time 2,000 years ago. The witness was going to be come and see we have met the king of Israel. So there were a lot of shortcuts to results that he passed up. There were invitations to participate in starting something in Israel. And there were times throughout the years where there was even an impatience. When are we going to do this? How is this going to happen? Because all of us felt the burden. But what we were going to do is pursue a generational recovery of pattern that secured generational continuity and the lamp from going out. You are part of a work where God made a promise that the lamp would not go out. If you want to be part of the fits and starts on and off light switch ministries, they're everywhere a dime a dozen. But slow down and get it right and establish the foundations and the patterns and stay true to the covenant God made with David and the lamp will never go out until the Lord returns. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Does a 14-year-old plus a newborn baby equal a family? No, it does not. It equals a tragedy combined with a promise that God can recover. But it's a tragedy of the worst proportions to all involved. Fools give us an either-or fallacy. Acknowledge that you hate the baby or admit this was done according to God's design. Look, the results are undeniable. Brother Howard, please, am I lying when I say there were times where people called and they looked like they were winning the masses with evangelism? And you guys were saying, we are getting relationships in order. And yes, people were coming to God, but Brother Howard was part of a, an evangelistic ministry for a season that it was expansive. It was Shooting Star Ministries Incorporated. And there's nothing. Their lamp has gone out. There's nothing. Nothing. Just a wistful memory. An echo in an empty room of an anointing that used to be there. Praise God. We chose the family.
and not the individual. We chose a generational pattern instead of shooting star successes. Praise God that your children and your children's children have a chance to be part of something enduring on the face of the earth. I can't even, I won't use names, but my mom gets a call in the middle of the night by the offspring of those that were once influential in their lives, confused, addicted, broken, directionless. But he will lift up the mountain of Yahweh's house above all the other mountains. Lord, keep the standard raised and keep the lamps burning. In Ephesians 3.15, he says, New King James, he says, I bow my knee before the Father from whom the whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. You see, in God's mind, there's just one family. One great whole family. I bow my knee before the Father from whom the whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Some of this family live in heaven on the shores of a better country and some of this family still live down here below. But we are a whole family. We are one family. We are still one family. And when you cross over, you're still part of us and we're still part of you because we're part of the body of Christ whose feet are upon the earth and whose head is in heaven, who bridges the gap between earth and God, who is Jacob's ladder, this veritable elevator shaft where heaven and earth are conjoined. The world doesn't need more out-of-wedlock successes. The world doesn't need more test-tube babies. The world needs the witness of ministries who will consider their flesh as good as dead, but not grow weak in faith as they seek the birth of God's recovered pattern for generational faithfulness. Ishmael became a nation, and Lot became two nations. But God was not doing a generational miracle through them. He was permitting a generational curse through the same. Do you know that Paul refers in four different books at four different times, he refers to Timothy as my true son or my true child. My legitimate son is what that means. As the opposite of my illegitimate. Paul never married. We're not talking about a race. We're not talking about ethnicity. We're talking about that generation that is born of the incorruptible seed of the word of God. That lives and abides and remains forever. So the one who never married could say, Timothy, my legitimate son. My true son. In the faith. Four times he called him my beloved child. In both of his Timothy epistles. 
and also to the Corinthians. In Matthew 24, which is paralleled in Luke 19, roughly. In Matthew 24, Jesus tells the time of the end. And as they were coming near the Mount of Olives, the people asked him, Lord, when is this going to happen? And what are the signs that this is at hand? So the operative question that Jesus was asked was, when? Can everybody say when? And what he commences to tell in the preceding chapter is in answer to the when question. He commences to answer when. And he does not give a specific date and say, this is when it's going to happen. In Luke, it says, and he said to those who imagined that the kingdom of God would appear immediately, this parable. And what parable did he tell them in Luke 19? The parable of the talents. And what is the theme of that parable? First of all, it's spoken to people who think that results are going to appear immediately. And so the whole theme is God will visit you and at times remove from you on a long journey, but you better bear fruit because He's coming back and He's going to see what you did with what He gave. The, the, the theme, the motif is it goes slower than you might expect. Can we agree with that? And then in Matthew 25, which is Matthew's version, he's answering the when question of Matthew 24. And one of the main parables that he tells there is what? The parable of the ten virgins. Now, it's a little bit misleading to call them virgins because there's nothing about the parable that emphasizes or favors that specifically. Some say it's better to call them bridesmaids. Or the, the, one other alternate translation says it's good to call them torch bearers. Hmm. And the theme of this message is that you've asked when. Well, I'm telling you it's going to be a lot longer than you think. It's going to be longer than you prepared for. You're going to run out of supplies because it's so much longer than you thought. Here we are 2,000 years after Jesus spoke that parable. And I acknowledge that we could say that the lamps are the anointing. And I think that's a meaningful interpretation. These are not mutually exclusive. But I want you to think about the fact that every time in the Old Testament a continuous lamp is used as a metaphor, every time it refers to generational continuity of faithfulness. David will have a lamp through his sons that will never go out forever. Every time. And then again, when the seven churches are spoken of with the female pronoun her in Revelations, they also are described as having a lamp. It's the same word. I think it's very possible that this describes churches who have a generational continuity 
and churches who do not. It cannot describe individuals because no individual has lived 2,000 years. It cannot describe individuals. He's answering, when is, is this going to happen? Do you know of any virgin who's lived 2,000 years? So that's, that's not it. But it is these entities who think they're the bride of Christ, who think they're part of the wedding supper of the Lamb, but who do not have this generational continuity. And so through the centuries, their lights go out. The most potent phrase in the whole thing to me is it says, and the foolish virgins turned to the wise and cried, our lamps are going out. I hear this cry in every church, every established church around the world. Our lamps are going out. But the lamp will not go out if we can maintain that we serve the God of our fathers. That there is a generational continuity that what I serve in did not begin with me and it does not end with me. I am merely a player on a stage where the play never goes, never ends until the Lord returns. <laughs> Hallelujah. And if you ever find yourself in a place where you say our lamps are going out, it's because you broke off the familial lineage, linear continuity of the family. But if you can stay in the place God's called you to be, then your children will know how to be sons because they saw you be a son. The, the deacons that are coming forth in 20 years will know what a deacon is because they saw you find your place in submission as a servant today in this hour. I don't want a one-off success. That's what the church world is full of. We don't need it. We don't need a headline. We don't need to fill a church as fast as possible. Trust me, we could fill it faster. We want a lamp that never goes out. God help us. Help us to hear the Lord speak to us, to our hearts today, as he says, I am the God of your fathers. Be our God also, so that our children will serve the God of their fathers. Amen. And this lamp will never go out. It's okay to respond to God. My heart feels like it's going to burst. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. It's okay to make a vow in your heart to the Lord that it's not about you. It's not about your shortcut results. It's about a pattern that is generational where his kingdom has no end and of the increase of his government there is no end and it brings peace. Thank you, Jesus. We surrender, God, to your design. We trust you, Lord, with all our hearts, God. Hallelujah. The gospel, the modern individualistic gospel has been diluted by those who wanted the shortcut to results.
And they are not giving birth anymore. But even if they were, that is not the sole objective. We want to give birth, but we want to give birth to a family. And we want to give birth to babies who are born to mothers and fathers. We don't want what the world calls success because those lamps are going out. Thank you, Jesus. We want to be the wise who recognize that we think the Lord may be coming in the next 50 years, and I don't actually mean that, but some think that may be. I I doubt it'll be that soon, but we think the Lord may be coming in the next 50 years, but we got a plan like he's not coming for another 2,000. Will there be any faith on the face of the earth when the Son of Man returns? No! No, unless we learn to think generationally, to build churches generationally, to discover generational patterns. Amen? To teach generationally, to pray generationally, to live with a generational view. Let the lamps burn. <laughs> Let the lamp burn with pure oil. <laughs> Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Let the wedding benediction be ours. Yahweh shall bless you and keep you. Yahweh will make you see your children and your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. Amen. May that be ours to see spiritual lineage, generational blessing, generational continuity, a lamp that never dies. Thank you, Jesus. Our Father is alive. Our Father is alive. His Spirit's moving in us. Our Father is alive. Our Father is alive. Our Father is alive. His Spirit's moving in us. Our Father is alive.